Now, with everything that I just said about Isaiah a minute ago, you might still be wondering why we're studying this this Christmas. I mean, after all, it's Christmas, right? Shouldn't we be talking about angels and babies and such, right? I mean, isn't it? Well, if you want to talk about if you want to talk about angels and shepherds and babies and such, come back tonight, and we're going to be talking about angels and babies and shepherds and such, and we're going to be singing about them and we'll be reading about them. But, but on Sunday mornings during December, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying four passages from this section of Isaiah, and we're, going to, and we're going to approach Christmas from the perspective of what are commonly referred to as, as the servant songs. See, there, there are four songs, four sections within this broader section of Isaiah that are sort of set off from the rest of the, of the prophecy. Right? As, as, it's evident, almost, as one commentator puts it, there's sort of a clear atmospheric change, he says, when you get to these songs. And what that means is they fit in the context. It's not that they aren't supposed to be there or that someone else wrote them later and inserted them in. They fit in the context. But when you get to them, you know you're reading kind of one of these servant songs because the air just feels different as you sort of breathe in the, in the words. The language becomes more exalted. It becomes more sweeping. And they all talk about this figure, the servant. And here's where, here's where it gets Christmassy, because, because the servant that Isaiah is talking about is someone who is claiming to be, who God is claiming to be, Israel's Messiah, their rescuer. And it's, it's the Messiah that history later identifies as, as Jesus, Jesus the servant. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in, in Philippi, Paul is writing a song about Jesus, a song, or he's quoting a song that was sung by the church at the time. And, and he's talking about, he's talking about the the very nature of, of what Christmas is. He says, he says this about Jesus. He says, even though, even though he was in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You hear that? I mean, that's Christmas right there. Right? Jesus, though equal with God, became human, and in doing so, he did what? He took the very nature of a servant. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that we have a Messiah who was born to be a servant? That's what we're going to be talking about over the, over the next four weeks. And I think what my, what my job is, as I kind of carve it out this morning, my task is to sort of start that conversation, to start that conversation about what that means. And Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9, is the place to do that because this is the first of the four servant songs of Isaiah. Now, from a literary point of view, take a look at it. You have it in front of you. Take a look at it. It sort of divides up like this. Right, verses 1 through 4, you sort of have this presentation of the servant, the introduction. Behold, some translations have at the beginning of verse 1. Right, what I read just kind of says, here is my servant, the introduction. That's verses 1 through, through 4. It's the Lord talking, and he's sort of talking broadly. Right, then in verses 5 through 9, right, you have this introduction of, of the person who's talking, of the God who's talking in verse 5. But then you have God talking again, but now he's shifting what he's saying, and he's speaking directly to the servant. It's sort of a commissioning and an anointing that's, that, that, that's happening. So those are, the two, those are the two kind of main, kind of, that's the literary division. That's kind of how it divides. Now, I think, I think within that, there's sort of two ideas, two main topics or things that I think are worth thinking about here as we consider this overall you know, theme of the servant of God coming at, at Christmas time. And that's first, the identity of the servant, who this guy is, and second, the mission of the servant. Because we're introduced to both of those things here in, in, these, in these nine verses. The identity of the servant and the mission of the servant. Now, first, the identity. I go back to verse 1. Because like I said, right, here's the big reveal. Right? Here is my servant. That's what it says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. 
Now, just, just to kind of define terms real quickly, there's a generic use of the term servant of God that's used throughout the Bible that just can refer generically to anyone who is, who is serving God, anyone who is doing something, who's following God, who's using their gifts in God's service. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, they refer regularly to kings, to prophets, as, as the servant of God. So, so there's, this, there's that kind of broad generic sense where anyone, you or I, we're servants of God. And the, and the Bible uses that word servant to refer to, uh, to, to people in those kinds of categories. Now, it's also, it can also be used in, in, in Scripture to refer to someone who, who might even not, not even be consciously worshiping God, but, but nonetheless, because he lives, in the, he lives in the world that God made and is under the authority of God, is still, even unwittingly, doing God's bidding. For example, Isaiah actually uses the, uses the term servant to refer to Cyrus who was the Persian emperor who would come after Babylon and conquer Babylon and, and would be the one that God would use to bring his people back into Jerusalem. Right? So here you have this emperor of a non-Jewish nation who isn't necessarily a worshiper of God and yet nonetheless is referred to as a servant because he lives in God's world, he's under God's sovereignty, and he's doing what God wants. So the word servant can be used in those ways, but that's not the sense in which Isaiah is using the word servant here. Right? And, and we, don't, we don't get that, I don't conclude that just because just because we read the New Testament and because we want to make it a Christmas theme, right? We get it because the ancient Hebrew scholars and the Jewish teachers, they specifically highlighted the servant language here as messianic, right? as referring to the, to the Messiah, right? There were these documents in use throughout, throughout Jewish history. And in the first century, when Jesus came on the scene, there were these things called targums. And a targum was a, a translation of the Hebrew scriptures with significant commentary that the teachers would use. And it was translated into the, the common language. So there, in, the, in the first century, when Jesus came on the scene, there were these two very prominent targums that were written in Aramaic that talked about Isaiah 42. And they very clearly kind of spell it out that they'd say, no, th- this is talking about the Messiah. And they, that, that, that's what they say. So now, now, now if that's important to understand because it's important to understand that the servant of Isaiah 42, according to the common Jewish teaching of the time, it's important to understand that it would have been understood as the Messiah because, because when Jesus comes onto the scene right, and begins his ministry, he's baptized by John. Do you remember? He, John the Baptist. He's baptized by John in the Jordan River, and you have this similar kind of big reveal moment, right? this, this similar presentation of, of Jesus. If you have a Bible, let's look at it. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, keep your finger in Isaiah 42 because we're going back. But, but Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, because here you have, so you have John, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist. And then it says, verse 16, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Right? Now immediately, you should, you should see immediately two shadows of Isaiah 42 that the commentators usually point out. Right? You still have your finger in Isaiah 42? Look, look at what, what do you see? First, you see the parallel, don't you, of, this, of the fatherly approval that's on display in Matthew. Right in Matthew, he kind of says, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And in Isaiah 42, here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Right? That's, one, that's one shadow that you kind of clearly see. The other thing you see is this placing of the Holy Spirit upon this anointed one. Right? Because th- this is the anointing that is authenticating the Messiah, that, that, that God is using to authenticate the identity of Jesus as the Messiah when, he, when, he's, when he's baptized. 
Right? And then, you, you know, and you have a clear fulfillment of, of what it's talking about in Isaiah 42. They would have heard the same thing. It says, I put my spirit on him. Right? This, this, this servant is the, is, is the Messiah. And then what, so then what you have is Jesus clearly, clearly claiming to be this servant. Right? He's claiming the identity of the servant in, in, in his baptism. Right? So, so that's, that's the servant of, of, of whom Isaiah speaks. And it's, in its narrowest sense, that's, that's his identity. Right? He's, the, he's the Messiah. But what do we learn about him? Right? I mean, what else do we see about him that kind of helps us with, a, with his identity here in Isaiah 42? Or, yeah, you can go back there now. Right? So now, clearly, clearly this, this, this servant has, has some sort of broad authority and power because he keeps talking about how he's going to bring justice to the nations and justice on the earth. We'll come back to that in in just a second. But, but that's just standard kingly stuff, isn't it? I mean, that's what kings do. They, they exert their authority. They bring, they bring justice. They rule. That's the kind of stuff you'd expect from a, from a, from a king, from a, from a messiah. Now, what's unique, though, what you wouldn't necessarily have in your stereotype of a great leader, is verse 2. He will not shout out, not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now, it's unique because that's not how you would, that's not how you would typically think of a great leader, you typically think of a great leader as someone who's, who's loud, who's really forceful, particularly in the ancient world, that would have been the case. He's a great warrior. He's got to prove himself. He's got to beat everyone else in order to be the, the leader. But even, even, you know, even today in contemporary kind of world, we, we still tend to think of that as sort of a main characteristic of what a, of what a leader is like. I, I was reading a review of, a, of a, a new book that just came out. The book's called The Fleet at Flood Tide. And it's, um, it's, it's a book about the rapid construction and the rise to global supremacy of the U.S. Navy during World War II. And, and at the head of this massive achievement was Ernest J. King. He was the commander-in-chief for the U.S. fleet. He was the, uh, the chief of naval, naval operations during World War II for the United States. And his, his achievements are absolutely remarkable when you consider the fact that the, 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 Pacific fleet, the Pacific fleet specifically was almost completely destroyed at Pearl Harbor. And in a matter of years, the U.S. Navy was, was basically rebuilt and expanded to, to rule the seas, to, to, to expand to sort of global supremacy. Right? But, but, but Ernest J. King sort of fell within, this is what fascinated me about it, he fell within the classic expectation of what you'd expect from a leader. I mean, he was, he was a brash, angry, in-your-face kind, of kind, of, kind of a guy. And, you, and you, you get this, his autobiography, his autobiography is, is entitled, Fle- so he wrote it about himself, is entitled Fleet Admiral King. Right? And you kind of, now that's his name, of course, but you kind of get the sense that he enjoyed the double meaning. Right? That he liked the fact that his name actually could be used as a title. Right? He was the Fleet Admiral King. It, the reviewer of this, of this book that I was reading kind of described him as, you know, just universally understood, he was just terrifying. His own daughter, his own daughter is quoted as saying that he was, he was the most even-tempered man in the entire Navy because he was always in a rage. Right? No ups and downs whatsoever. He's just always angry. He's just always yelling at people. Right? And that's, now that's, that's Fleet Admiral King, but that's not this king. Right? Do you see the contrast? This king is different. He will not shout and cry out, raise his voice in the, in the streets. And that's one of the core themes that kind of comes through when, you, when, you, when, you, when you're kind of considering Christmas. Right? You me- remember that line from Away in a Manger? Right? The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And I've always, I've always had a problem with that. It always just kind of struck me wrong. Right? Because, 
I mean, I get what the Carol writer is kind of getting at that, like, you know, you, here you have this, you know, this, this Jesus, and he had a sinless temperament from the very beginning. But there's lots of good reasons for a baby to cry that aren't necessarily rebellious anger, right? You just cry because he's hungry, cry because he's tired. Right? Th- those, are just, those are just marks of the human condition of humanity, and they're not necessarily marks of, of sin. But, but maybe, I was just thinking about this, maybe the writer of the Carol is, is onto something. Maybe he knew something more. Maybe he inadvertently is saying it without even knowing. We'll never know. Nobody's actually sure, I don't think, who wrote it. Right? But, but, but maybe, maybe he's on to something. Right? Because maybe what, what, maybe what he's saying is the baby isn't crying because this is the baby who doesn't cry out. Maybe he's the baby's servant. Which, of course, wouldn't mean that he wouldn't necessarily, that he would never cry. It just means that he would be different. That when you came into the presence of this baby, when you look at him, when he awoke, lying there. He was just different. Something different about this baby, right, which of course just comes back to this larger point of, of identity. That's, that's what we know here about, about who this servant is, right? The servant is the Messiah. He's the anointed one with the power of God validated by the Spirit of God, and this servant uniquely displays this, this sort of combination of kingly strength on the one hand and servant humility on the other. That's the identity of the, of the servant. That's point one. Now, second, the mission of the servant. Right? What is his mission? Well, he's going he's to bring justice. Go back, to the, go back to the middle of verse 1. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And then go to the middle of verse 3 and, and into, into verse 4. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Now, now, three times then you have this word, justice, being, being used. And it's the, it's the Hebrew word. It's the same Hebrew word in every case, the Hebrew word mizpot. Mizpot. And we need to understand this word because, because mizpot means, means justice in, in different senses, in different circumstances. And, and it, it can be used in, in, different, in different ways. And one of the com- as one, com- one of the commentators points out, often when we hear the word justice, what we think of kind of instinctually is retributive justice. Right? Somebody does something wrong and they're punished for it. That kind of justice, retributive justice, you know, sort of judgment justice, if you, if you, if you will. Right? But, but that's, not, that's not the complete sense in which the word is being, being used here. See, here the concept of, of, this, of, of justice is broader. As some of you I know have an ASV study Bible, and the ASV study Bible and the note on this actually hints at it, I found. Right? It says this is actually, it's broader than this. It refers to sort of this creation of a perfect human society. Something, something broader than just sort of punishing, punishing wrong. Another commentator, in a little more detail, the Old Testament scholar John Oswald, he puts it like this. He says, Mizpot connotes much more than just judicial equity. In its broadest sense, it involves societal order in which the concerns of all are addressed. Divine Mizpot that the servant will establish is nothing less than the salvation of God defined in its broadest sense. This is the life-giving order which exists when the creation is functioning in accordance with the design of the Lord. You get that? In other words, the servant is coming to bring back, to restore the state of harmony that God intended for the world to have. It, it sort of implies, doesn't it, that, that, that this design that originally existed is no longer the way the world looks, that something has gone wrong with that design, that everything's been thrown out of order. And, of course, all we have to do is look at the world to realize that that's absolutely true. 
Now, it's not less than our own human hearts. In fact, it originates there. It originates from our rebellion against God. That's the origin. That's the foundation for why this world doesn't exist according to God's original design. But this concept of justice is more than just about sort of the retributive or or judicial equity in the punishment of sin. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It is the restoration of all things to the design that they were originally intended for. And you you see how far this justice reaches, how it clearly goes beyond the, just the narrow circumstances of this nation state of, of, of Israel. In verse 3, right, it says that, that he's going to bring it, the servant's going to bring it to the nations. In verse 4, it's going to be a justice that, that's going to be on the earth such that the islands, which is just a, it's just a metaphor, it's just an image that kind of is meant to convey, the, the farthest reaches of the earth, at the very edge of the, of, of, of the world, it's going to reach that far. It's going to go to the islands. The islands are going to put their hope in this teaching of the, of the servant. And then at the end of verse 6, you see, he's going to, it, this servant's going to be a light to the Gentiles, right? Even, even those who aren't ethnically Jewish. And this, this, this mizpah, this, this justice that restores rightness, it's not only going to reach far, it's not only going to reach wide, it's going to reach deep. It's going to transform from the inside out, from the bottom up, everyone that it, that it touches. Look at verse 7. It's going to open eyes that are blind. It's going to free captives from prison. It's going to release those from, from, dungeon who's, from the dungeon who sit in darkness. Now here too, we should, we should hear Jesus claiming not just the identity of the servant, but claiming the mission of the servant. Right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you probably remember. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus beginning his public teaching ministry. He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, which was his, his hometown. He goes into the synagogue, and, he goes in, and they hand him the scroll from Isaiah. And he opens the scroll, and he reads. This is what he reads. This is what Luke 4 says he reads. He says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah 61, not a quote from Isaiah 42. But it's the same stuff that Isaiah is talking about here, isn't it? Right? And, in, and, and Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, he reads that, and he, he gives it back, and he says, Hey, in case you were wondering, the guy I was reading about, that's me. Right? His mission, my mission, because I'm him. See, he claims, he claims the identity of Jesus, or he claims the identity of the servant, and he claims the mission of the servant. And of course, now, of course, the mission of Jesus, he did concern himself with the, with the literal poor. He did concern himself with the literal blind. He healed them. He, 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 he took care of them. He had compassion on them. But it wasn't, the, but the primary thing that he was coming to free the people from, Jesus, was not the oppression of the Roman Empire, any more than Isaiah is talking about the freedom from oppression that that the servant is going to come, to come bringing is not freedom from the, the Babylonian captivity. It may not happen ultimately, but that's not primarily what he's talking about. This is freedom from the bondage that exists because of our rebellion against God, because we are ultimately responsible and liable and guilty of the, the, the we're the reason why the world doesn't exist the way it, it's supposed to. The reason why the harmony doesn't exist. The, re- the, why, the reason why there isn't this mizpah. It's our fault. That puts us in darkness. It puts us in, in slavery, in the dungeon. And Jesus has come. His mission has come to be able to free us from that, to free us from the, from the consequences of that. Now, how does the servant do it? How does he carry out that mission? Well, first of all, we have to go back to verse 3 and notice something very important. Right? He carries out, however he's going to carry it out, he carries it out with great compassion and great gentleness. Look at verse 3. It's an absolutely beautiful image. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, a bruised reed, it's a stalk of grain. 
that's been bent over, probably by the wind, bent over to the point where it's, it's, it's kind of it's ready to snap. It hasn't, the top hasn't broken off, but it's, just, it's done. It's, it's not going to grow anymore. And most people normally walk along, you see something like that, you just, you just can pick off the top. You just can't help yourself. You just can't pick off the top. What, what Isaiah is saying is, like, if you feel like you're a bruised reed, <laughs> that's not how the servant is going to come to you. He's going to come with compassion. He's not going to break it off. He's going to restore it. He's going to heal it. He's going to bring it back to life. Same thing with the, with the, this idea of the, the smoldering wick. It's just a candle, a candle where the light is flickering, where the flame's about to go out. And again, most of us, our tendency, you see something like, you just go, just blow it out. But no, that's not what the servant's going to do. The servant's going to come, and he's, he's going to care. For, he's, going to, he's going to bring that flame back to life. He's going to fan it back into a, into a, into a flame. Right? And that's, 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 that's what happens. Now, th- this idea of a bruise is pretty serious. Right? Usually we kind of use the, use the word bruise and, and, we, and we use it in sort of a, a dismissive kind of way. Oh, it's just a bruise. Right? But, the, but the word bruise here, it, I mean, it means like crushed, destroyed, like, like, like smashed. It's pretty serious. So when we see God coming to us in, in this servant and saying, I'm going to come to those that are smashed, to those that, to those that feel crushed, and I'm not going to break you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to restore you. That's, part, that's how he goes about the mission, and that's, that's important. But, but flowing from that, flowing from that, he carries out the mission with sacrifice and with suffering. Now, the other servant songs that we're going to look at over the next three weeks, they'll bring this out with more clarity, but what's being introduced here is not just a servant in general, but a suffering servant, a servant who knows what it's like to experience suffering. And it's not just, it's not just incidental, it's not just experiential suffering. Right? He doesn't just experience suffering where you say, like, oh, I like that because he, he gets it. He knows what it feels like. I mean, he does experience suffering, but it's not just experiential suffering that this servant is, 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 is encountering, is enduring. It's effectual suffering. It's suffering that does something. It's not just the experience of it. It's, it's, it's suffering that's effectual, that brings about something. It's suffering that actually accomplishes the mission. And, and like I said, we don't see it as clearly here as we'll see it in the, in the coming weeks, but there's hints even here. When God says in verse 4 that, that he will not falter, he will not faint, he will not grow discouraged in his mission, God's hinting at the fact that the mission is not going to be easy, that it's going to involve some suffering by, by the servant. He's going to win, he's not going to be deterred, he's not going to fail, he's not going to falter, but it's going to cost him something as he, as he accomplishes it. And, and go back to that comment about the, the servant not shouting, not crying out, not, not raising his voice. Right? There's a hint there as well. Of, the, of sort of the resolute suffering of the, of the servant. Because think, think again about Jesus. Remember, Jesus, who identifies both with the identity and with the mission of the, of the servant. Think about Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he experiences the ultimate suffering to accomplish his mission, now, of course, he, he speaks. He says words from the cross. They're recorded in Scripture. He even cries out, it says. He cries, cries out in a loud voice just before he dies. Right? But he doesn't protest. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't speak. Speak out, right? When he is going through the streets, when he's being led outside of, the, outside of the city to his ultimate execution, going through the streets, he's not crying out in the streets. He's not trying to elicit sympathy. He's not trying to raise the crowd to his, to his side. He's willingly accepting what is happening. Why? Because the cross was part of the mission. The servant experiences the, 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 the cross, the suffering, because that's how the mission of the servant is, is accomplished. Or, or to put it a different way, the servant willingly accepts and experiences the, the retributive justice, the, the, the justice of the judge, 
so that we can experience the peace justice, the Mizpah. Do you see? He experiences the justice that we deserve so that we can experience the peace that only he can bring. Now, if then, that's the identity of the servant, that's the mission of the servant. If that's, if that's true, if that's who it is, if that's, who we, if that's what we have in front of us here, right, then, then, we have, then we must, we must kind of step back and say, wait a minute, I have to have an amazing amount of respect for this servant. I, I, th- this, is, this is totally different than what, I, than, what I might have, than what I might have thought. Once you learn, in other words, once you learn the identity of who this servant really is, and what his mission really is, and you let that sink down kind of deep, then you, ke- you, you can't go on the same way that you were going on before. You, you have to just, you have to fall down in amazement and, and worship that someone would do this for you. I, I was reading an article by James, uh, James Moshgat. Uh, James Moshgat. He was writing a, he was writing a story uh, about a time when the realization of someone's identity completely changed for him how he thought of that person. It was, it was a fall afternoon in 1976. Moshgat was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he was a cadet there, and he was reading a book. Forgive me for this is two World War II references, I know, in the same message. But, but he was reading a book about the, about the campaign, the, 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 um, the campaign in Italy. And, uh, and he was reading this book, Moshgat, this cadet, 1976. He's reading this book about the, the Allied campaign in Italy and about this particularly fierce battle that happened fighting for a hill near this small Italian town, September 1943. And in this account, there's the story of this 25-year-old named William Crawford, Private William Crawford. And he was the scout for his platoon, but his commanding officer that he was with was killed. The rest of his platoon was separate from him and completely pinned down by three machine gun nests that were going to basically destroy them, basically wipe them out. But he had no commanding officer to tell him what to do. And on his own initiative, he basically took it upon himself to flank these machine gun nests. And he took out all three of them with grenades and a rifle. He took out all three of them and saved the lives of everyone in his platoon. Now, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's interesting. That's amazing. But what shocked the cadet, James Moshgat, as he's reading this, what shocks him as he's reading this in 1976 was the reali- realization that Private Crawford was the guy that he only knew as Mr. Crawford, the gray-haired, nice, but quiet guy who was the janitor in their dormitory who walked with a limp. And see, no one had known it. But, but, but Mr. Crawford was the recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. He, he actually, his father actually received the Congressional Medal of Honor because he had been captured. They didn't, in, in this effort, he was captured. They thought he was dead. They, they presented the award to his father, assuming that, assuming that he was dead, but he wasn't. He came back. Right? And now, after a career in the Army, he went back in the Army, he served 20 years in the Army, he retired, he retired as a janitor at the U.S. Air Force Academy because he wanted to be around the military, wanted to be able to serve people you know, who were, in, who were, in, who were training for that, for that line of work. But this absolutely floored him. Right? This is the Congressional Medal of Honor. This is the only award given by the president on behalf of the U.S. Congress, the highest, highest award of valor that can be given in the United States military. And it basically creates military royalty. It's, it's the only award that often elicits salutes from superior officers unsolicited. It doesn't matter what the rank of the, of the recipient. Right? Even a superior officer will come up and just, and just salute you because of the, because of the, because of the award. It creates it's military royalty. This was the guy. <laughs> Right? that his classmates had largely ignored because he was the guy who swept the floors. 
And, they, and when they went up to him, Mashkak and his, and his other cadets, they went up to him and they showed him the book and he said, is this you? He said, yeah, I'm the guy. That's the, that's, I'm that guy. So why did you ever tell us? And he said, look, he said, it was a long time ago. It was one day a long time ago. He said, just get to class. You know, don't worry about it. Forget about it. But the problem is, like, they couldn't. How could you forget that? Right? That, in, that in your presence is, 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 this, is this guy. Right? Now, so, so now what they did, what, they greeted Mr. Crawford. <laughs> they said hi to him. They treated, they treated him with just an extra level of, uh, of respect. They, they sought his advice. They invited him to squadron, you know, kind of, kind of events. They, they took pains not to leave a really big mess because they didn't want him to, him to have to clean it up. Right? Now, of course, part of them realized that this is probably how we should have been treating him regardless. Probably how we should be treating every janitor, right? That's one of the lessons and stuff that, that very clearly, you know, they, they, they learned from this. But, but what caused their respect for Mr. Crawford to soar? Not just simply that he was a Medal of Honor winner, but that he was a Medal of Honor winner who wasn't on parade. He was cleaning their toilets, sweeping their floors, and taking out their trash. Do you see the parallel? Right? God deserves your respect no matter what. No matter what. Right? He's God. He created you. He absolutely demands and deserves your respect in every way. But what happens when you realize this, that this God who created the universe and deserves your respect just simply on his merits actually also came to clean up your mess? Right? Then this sort of duty of respect is transformed into absolute amazement. Right? Now, is that true for you this Christmas? Or, 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 or do you need to spend a little bit more time just sort of staring into the, to the manger to remember that Jesus wasn't just born in a barn. He came to clean your barn, to muck it out. That's why he came. That's what the servant does. Now, the other thing that, that happens when you, come, when you come face-to-face with this realization is that, is that you realize you now have power, the motivation to be a servant too. It's so easy to just sort of skip to that. You see language like this, go, ju- you know, justice to, to the ends of the earth, and you say like, yeah, go out. Go out and, f- and fight for justice. Go out and, and, and fight for equity, for, for, the, for the poor, for the oppressed. And all those things are things that the Christians ought to be doing. But if you skip to that without dealing with the underlying issue, the underlying problem, the real issue of, of, of justice, then you're not going to really affect any kind of change whatsoever. But if you come face to face with this servant, with who he is and what he's done for you. And, and if that really sinks down deep and transforms you from the inside out, not only now do you have the justification for being able to go out into the world and seek justice, but you have the power to do it as well. Right? It, it, Colonel Moshgott right, wrote about Mr. Crawford. And this is what he says. He puts it like this. He said, okay, he said, if Bill Crawford, who's a Medal of Honor recipient, could clean latrines and smile, then is there a job that you could possibly claim that is beneath your dignity? Now, raise that up a notch, a big notch, and replace Bill Crawford with Jesus. Is there anything that a servant like that couldn't ask you to do? Anything where you'd have the right to go back to him and say, you know, I think that's kind of beneath me. There isn't. And, and, And so what that means is that because Jesus is the servant, you're free to serve with joy in whatever you're called to do, without resentment. Without the, without the need to prove yourself, right? From, from, from another angle, think of it like this. If Jesus is the servant, is there anything, could there possibly be anything that you're going through right now about which you can rightly say, Jesus, you just don't understand. You just don't get it. 
Right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Christmas, I mean, it's a time of joy. We put it that way. But, this, but that's not, it's not that way for everyone, for all people. It's not as if kind of for four weeks in December, the rest of life just kind of stops. Right? But, but is there anything where you're able to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't, th- I don't think you understand. You're feeling lonely, feeling abandoned, feeling rejected. Right? He knows. Your friends who misunderstand you, enemies who are out to, out to get you, he knows. Suffering from physical pain, he did. Are you feeling like a bruised reed, like a smoldering wick, like you're about to go out? Almost kind of wishing sometimes, or just someone just come along and snuff me. Is that how you're feeling? That's not how the servant comes. The servant comes to the bruised reed the smoldering wick and breathes life into it, brings it back. That's who he is. That's why he came. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us exactly, exactly what we need. Lord, I don't know that we could have possibly designed (laughs) a remedy to what ails us in this world personally or corporately or everything that's going on around us, but you knew exactly who to send, exactly what that that one needed to be like. Lord, help us to marvel at that this this Christmas, To to be reminded that you sent a servant, a suffering servant, who had complete, absolute, total authority, and yet at the same time, deep, rich compassion and care. Lord, help those twin characteristics of boldness and humility be evident in us as we live in the identity of the servant, as we, as we recognize our, our unity, our identity that is in Christ. Lord, help us to live that out as well, to go into the world with a simultaneous boldness and, and humility. God, I, I pray for, for, for everyone who's here, and for those who, who may feel just like that, that wick, like that, that reed. I pray that you would bring comfort pray that you would bring hope. I pray, Lord, for, 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 for the hope that comes only through this Christ, this Messiah. We pray in his name. Amen.